You're listening to audio from Shandon Baptist Church. If you'd like to check out more resources from us, please visit our website at shandon.org. So uh, we're in a two-part series, One Nation, Under God. Last week we did One Nation. This week we're doing Under God and what that means. And uh, the question we're trying to press into in this session is how can believers live under God in our current culture? And what does that look like? And where are the tensions that exist as we interact with folks that are not believers or perhaps think differently than we do, or perhaps have a different worldview. So we're uh, trying to press into that question. So last week, we looked at some responses to our political climate. Uh, The two that we drilled down on were the separatists, which uh, these are believers who ask, how can you love God and talk about politics in the church? So they keep politics completely out of church. They don't want it to be discussed. And then you have the activists who believe that you can't love God and not or, and take a stand on political issues. So they really want there to be an engagement in the political issues in a very high-profile, highly visible way. So those are the essentially the polar opposites, if you will, in our current Christian culture about how we engage in politics. And then we talked about four biblical absolutes that we can kind of build upon to get us to our discussion tonight. So number one... We declare that there are two kingdoms that are in conflict. They're not equal kingdoms. Let's be clear about that. They are not equal. This is not yin and yang. This is the kingdom of God, uh, which, of course, God is sovereign. Number two, every believer has dual citizenship. If we are born again, we have dual citizenship. As Paul said in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, but we're also residents of this earth. We are resident aliens, if you will. Absolute three, human governments are ordained by God for one purpose, and that's to restrain evil, as we uh, read in the book of Romans. And then the fourth absolute, the church is ordained by God to make disciples, which of course is our commission. We'll touch that again tonight. So, where do we go from here? Well, we're not going to read all of Daniel chapter 1, but of course you probably know the narrative In Daniel chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians take children of Israel into exile and they begin to find some of the young men who are intelligent and good-looking to serve in the king's court, essentially, and they pick four men, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, that is, those names are actually their Babylonian names, but their Jewish names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but their names are changed in that culture. Interesting. And so uh, they are given the king's choice food. They get the royal treatment so that they can serve in the king's court. And of course, chapter eight or chapter uh, one, verse eight, this very telling verse, which many of you have seen before, Uh, Daniel rises up in gentle protest to the culture around him. And it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And you know the story. Those, Those four men end up rising above all of the others because they cling to their culture, to uh, their standards, if you will. And so this is a a great contextual 
passage that we can look at to discern how we're supposed to engage our culture. So we're going to push beyond Daniel into this question that really exists in our culture today, and you've seen it, and you'll recognize it when we talk about it. We really do live in a culture that wants to give glory and honor to self. And uh, so I've called this the all hell me, I call it the gospel of self. And this is the culture that we're really living in and trying to speak into as believers. And so I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about what this culture believes. And you're going to see some things in here that are going to resonate. And you go, well, yeah, that makes sense to me. The first is this. What we're experiencing in our culture is not so much the eradication of God, but rather the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. People aren't running around today saying God is dead God doesn't exist. We don't hear the arguments of atheists. They're out there, but that's not the predominant message of our culture. The predominant message of our culture is the enthroning of self. It's the gospel of self. It's the ultimate authority of the individual over and above everything else. Number two, God, therefore, is increasingly being relegated to the role of servant. And sadly, this is true in the church. We see this a lot in the church. A minion for personal desire and personal will with no reference to objective truth. That's the world that we're living in. And it is creeping ever so slightly into the church that God exists to give me anything I want and my will is predominant. My will is ultimately authoritative. That is the mindset and worldview of many of our culture today and it's creeped into the church. So... If we could call it secular salvation, secular salvation or salvation of those outside the church, those in our world and in our culture in general, is the eradication of personal and social oppression. So think about this. Our culture believes that the greatest evil in the world, the biggest problem in the world, is personal and social oppression. Think about that. But oppression... Oppression is defined as anything that makes me, the individual, uncomfortable, offends me, or that with which I disagree. That is the world's definition of salvation. And so the only only way for the world to be set right is to get rid of all of this personal and social oppression. But think about it. Everyone defines oppression differently if the self, the gospel of self, elevates an individual above everything else. There is no objective truth, no objective authority, and the individual then gets to choose what oppresses them or what doesn't oppress them. And that's why we have all of this acrimonious language and culture going on. And so in a post-Christian world, justice is always sought externally because evil is only out there. The biblical worldview is that evil is in here. And so if the answer to the world's problems, according to the culture in which we live, is out there, it's all external. In other words, there's nothing wrong with me because I am supreme. That's what the world's culture has brought us to. And so what we see is that in a post-Christian world, justice is, in fact, that which is external because the evil that we're talking about is never in here. It's always circumstantially. It's always out there. So what has to be fixed is not in here. It's out there. That's the world that we're living in today. Now that's heavy and that's a lot to take in, but think about how this plays itself out in everyday life. 
everyday life. Everybody's worried about their rights. Everybody's worried about what they believe is uh, their version of truth, their version of what's good and moral. And they scream at the top of their lungs. And this is the culture that we live in now. There is no objective truth because truth is whatever I say it is. That's the culture that we live in. That's the gospel of self. So there is a dogma of no dogma. And to adapt what Mark Sayers said, he said, with its great mission to prohibit anyone from prohibiting, our modern culture's dogma is that there should be no dogma. This is the intolerance of tolerance. We cannot tolerate intolerance, can we? And yet those who say that we are intolerant are in fact being intolerant because they don't believe there should be dogma or truth of any kind because that is oppressive That encroaches on what I believe, who I am, and what I choose to do with my life. Interesting. So, uh, most of you have heard of Andrew Breitbart. Uh, He is the one who said this, politics is downstream from culture. Politics is downstream of culture. Now, I want to pause here. Chuck Colson used to say this over and over again. Politics is downstream of culture. Here's what we as Christians like to do. We believe that the flow in this is reversed. We think that if we attack politics, we're going to change culture. It never happens. It never happens. And it won't happen because politics is always downstream of culture. So guess what you have to attack? You have to attack the culture. And you do so in a gospel-driven way. But the problem is we think that if we try to change politics, we're going to change the culture. It's not going to happen because politics always follows culture. You go and study any historical movement. I don't care if it's Greece, if it's Rome, if it's the Middle Ages, if it's uh, medieval Europe, it doesn't matter. This always happens. Culture rises up and then politics follows. So if we try to just use all of our energy to change politics or the politicians, or we try to basically Uh, mortgage our theological future on some political movement, then guess what happens? We change nothing. We really don't change anything. And so the gospel really asks us to speak into our culture to the individual because remember, evil's not something that's out there. It's something that's in here in the human heart. That's the teaching of Scripture. Okay? So what do we believers do? How should we respond to the culture in which we live? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 6, Verse 16, there's this great verse that's tucked away. um, And we ought to pay attention to it because Jeremiah, as a prophet, was extraordinarily prophetic in this verse. And he said this, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And notice what it says, And find rest for your souls. Now, most of you would agree that we live in what could be the most anxious, depressed, and suicidal generation in the history of our planet. Absolutely. Today's millennial generation, extraordinarily anxious. And and one of the reasons is because the more we elevate autonomy, the more we elevate the personal individual, the more we place self at the center of everything, the more isolated we become, and the more isolated we become, the more anxious we become. So the more we push self to the center of our existence, rather than keeping God there, which by the way is the first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me, 
the more anxious we're going to become. And so Jeremiah was speaking into our culture several hundred years ago. And so we ought to pay attention to that. So what are some practical things that we can do as we live under God? Now remember, we're going to take Jeremiah's advice and we're going to look at the ancient path. So what we're going to do is going to say some things that you're going to go, well, of course, I knew that. Well, these are the things that we just need to pay attention to as we live in our culture today and try to respond biblically in a way that honors and pleases God. So number one, we ought to focus on the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Now, if you've been in church at all, most of you have, you go, well, of course we should focus on those things. What's the Great Commandment? Does anybody know? Exactly. Exactly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the deal. Last week, what did we say about love? That it's the supreme virtue in the kingdom of God. But the supreme virtue in a free democratic society is justice. Justice is about external conformity to make sure that everything is, is what? Is essentially just or equal. But love is the supreme virtue in the kingdom of God. And you can never leverage justice to achieve what love can accomplish. It won't get you there. And that's why when we focus on justice, we miss out on the opportunities that love gives us. And that's why Jesus said, look, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We receive grace. Think about the cross, the axis of the cross. We receive grace through the vertical axis of the cross, but we are to give grace through the horizontal axis of the cross. That's how that works. So the church is the conduit for grace, both receiving from God and also giving to one another. A lot of people in the world today say, I want to be spiritual, but I don't want God and I don't want the church. Well, if we don't have the church, then you're just living a faith fantasy. You really are. Because there's no such thing as like an individually lived religious experience. That to me is just a fantasy. That's why God created the church. That's why He's blessing the church. That's why He said, I will build my church. Why? Because we need each other in the give and take of learning how to love one another and also to love God. And of course, you know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus said. Go and make what? Disciples. Jesus did not come to make crowds. And yet we measure the success of churches based upon crowds. Do we not? Now the crowds are fickle because the crowd yelled Hosanna to Jesus on Sunday and then crucify Him a few days later. The crowd is always fickle. We are not called to build crowds. We're called to build disciples. And disciples are those who make more disciples. So we ought to focus on that. It's not just about the crowds. The crowds may be indicative of something good and healthy and true and beautiful, and that's great. But we got to keep in mind, it's not just the crowd that we're trying to build. It's disciples, people that are followers of Christ, making followers of Christ. Number two, pretty simple. Let's pray. We ought to pray. Now, most of you know 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, that says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, that's pretty comprehensive right there. That's pretty comprehensive. All of that be made for all people. 
And then Paul adds this, for kings and all who are in high positions. In other words, people in authority, even those that are in social or political authority, hence kings. Well, why do we do that? Well, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then Paul says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, in verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now think about this. There is a direct correlation between our prayers for those in authority and the proliferation of the gospel and people coming to know the Lord. Why do you think that is? Because the best cultural context within which people will come to know the Lord is quite often the one that is peaceful and quiet godly and dignified. Why? Because the gospel can proliferate. Now it can proliferate in uh, traumatic environments as well. And we certainly know that. But the opportunity to share the gospel is often magnified in those cultures and places where there is order. That's why, for one reason, the United States has been able to be a sending nation, at least within the confines of our borders, to other countries. Why? Because we have the freedom to do so. But you don't have that freedom in a lot of other places, as you know, which is why we shut down our live stream when we commission some folks to places overseas that are hostile to the gospel. So we ought to pray. Number three, focus on the truth of God's Word. Now, I know you know this, but the framework for our understanding what is truth has to be the Word of God. Absolutely has to be the Word of God. And I know you would expect me to say that, and that's something that we embrace here, Shandon. As George says every Sunday, we stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God because we stand under its authority, and that's important. As Jesus said to Pilate when he was on trial, so you're a king, he asked him, and Jesus said, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The point is, we ought to be listening to the voice of Christ way more than we listen to the voice of Fox News. Or any other news station. Okay? Truth. Now, if we abandon truth and we mortgage our spiritual future to a political agenda, a political party, or a political candidate, we are going to be a culture, a people in ruins. Because think about this. Many of us in the West are shaped by democratic political systems where everyone has a voice, right? Everyone has a voice. We are shaped by the cultures of expressive individualism and, more recently, our technological conveniences. Think about that. That has shaped us. The role of father today has been relegated to the one who gives out the Wi-Fi passwords. That's what many dads do today. They think their role with their children is to say, well, here's the Wi-Fi password so the children can be happy. We're just a conduit to the Internet. So fatherhood has been reduced in our culture. Why? Because of the technological conveniences. So our culture now believes that the ultimate good is always that which advances the individual's freedom, enhances personal autonomy, and satisfies personal desire. My wife and I are reading a book together right now called The Coddling of the American Mind, and it is jaw-dropping. 
It is so good. Not written by a believer. Unbelievable how this has impacted the emerging generation. Unbelievable. And yet we're the ones charged with equipping and modeling for the next generation. So let's don't give up on that. Okay, so how do we live under God? Number four, we're going to have to move quickly. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This comes directly out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. This was our Sunday school lesson this past Sunday, which was a lot of fun to walk through. Well, how do you know that you're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, fortunately, verse 2 tells us five things. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. If those things are present in your life, Paul says, you are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. How true that is. Number five, grab hold. Don't expect your preferred political party to advance kingdom purposes. Chuck Colson said the kingdom of God will never be ushered in on Air Force One. That is so true. Not going to happen ever. I don't care who's in the White House and who's flying on Air Force One. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's what we need to grab a hold of. What does God think? And so if we mortgage our spiritual behavior and our spiritual growth to a political agenda, then we have already bankrupted our spiritual life. So be very careful not to marry those two. Colson said the danger with Christian political movements is that they tend to make the gospel hostage to a, a particular political agenda. You may wrap the cross in a flag and make God a prop for the state, but this is a grave, grave danger. So beware, beware of wrapping the cross in a flag. So how do we love under God? Don't expect the church, and this is important to accomplish what only the individual believer can achieve. Here's what I hear a lot in the role that I serve uh, and play here at Shandon. I think the church should do this. I think the church should do that. I get suggestions all the time, and I have never in my life had a suggestion box. But I get suggestions all the time of what the church should be doing. And my answer usually is, that's a great idea. Since you are the church, go do it. Go do it. Because there's some things that you can do as an individual believer because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, look, we are salt and light. You don't need the organization or the institution of the church to accomplish what God has called you to do as salt and light in your respective areas where you live, work, and play. Did you know that 39 of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts occurred outside the gathered body of believers? 39 of the 40 miracles occurred outside the gathered body of believers. You know what the one exception is? Somebody lied about what they gave, and they died on the spot. That was the miracle that occurred inside the gathered body of believers. I'm just saying, okay? So we'll move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This is for perspective. This is for perspective. For those people that you interact with, that you see on the news, that tweet out, 
that put something on Instagram, that send you an email, that call you, that text you, that annoying relative that doesn't think or vote the way you vote. Remember this, okay? And this is true in all our relationships. The natural person, the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Jesus, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're absolutely foolish to them. They make no sense. And that person is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that's true in any relationship, but it is especially true when it comes to 